It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Lee. Welcome to the Tuesday edition of Daily Thunder. So, uh, with the arrival of a new student's uh, body, we are going through a sort of an introductory course on prayer, uh, and it's probably going to be three episodes. I haven't fully decided if on Friday we're going to do another one, but at least Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of this week, we're going to be going through some foundational concepts of prayer. And yesterday we talked about the ant and the corn, uh, the tireless ant. We talked about the rope and pulling, and we talked about the shovel and the digging. And we were creating some metaphors to really grip the idea of prayer. Uh, For those of you that are streaming or uh, hearing this on podcast, I would highly encourage you to listen to that that particular uh, episode, yesterday's episode. uh, I think it's called The Tireless Ant just to wrap your mind around the construct of prayer. This one's going to build on that. And I like the title, Dogged. Uh, It's interesting because if you ask the question, where does the word dogged come from? A lot of us understand, uh, at least in the American culture, this this word. uh, And it sort of means like a tireless pursuit. And it comes from, you know, like the the dog, the hound dog, you know, sniffing down the raccoon. Uh, It's a tireless, it's on its heels and it will not relent. And then it trees it and then it barks and barks and barks. And a dog, a good hound dog, will stay at that tree until he's called off uh, by his master. And so it's like, that's, that's, that's a pretty good illustration. And the other illustration of dogged, which I mentally probably lean towards personally, because I, I was never a hunter with hound dogs, okay? So I did read Where the Renford Grows, so I, I do have somewhat of an appreciation. But uh, the bulldog uh, around the ankle, you know, where he's like, <laughs> and he grabs the, the, uh, the ankle, and you're like trying to shake him off, and he won't go anywhere. And yeah, like that. You see, this is actually the pattern of prayer that God is setting out. Isn't it funny that for us, our sensibilities would declare that this is rude. I I don't want to presume upon God and just like keep knocking and keep yanking or how about grabbing a hold of the ankle and and just tirelessly pursuing and barking up the tree. And yet at the same time, he says, you want to honor me? That's what I'm asking of you. You see, this is a battle. And what we oftentimes have a a difficult time understanding is we pray and we're trying to figure out why doesn't God just do? Now, there's a story in Daniel which actually gives a little illumination, but we're lacking clarity, truly. In other words, the Bible doesn't give us all the answers. It just tells us what to do. It doesn't show us in detail all the gradients of friction and uh, of barrier between us and that kingdom, and that kingdom getting here. It doesn't show us. It just says little things. Like Daniel prays, and he makes a request of God, and God's answering. But it takes 21 days. And we're like, why why does God need 21 days? Well, supposedly, the angel with the messenger is coming, but he is opposed by an enemy force. That's just an odd thought. And then, what is it? Michael? Is it Michael the archangel that breaks it loose after 21 days, after three weeks, and finally the messenger is able to reach Daniel? Okay. (laughs) All right. It's in the Bible. In other words, we're reading it. You see, for many of us, we don't understand the battle. We don't understand what is actually taking place. God says, I'm going to give you an assignment. Trust me. 
And if you've ever given, been given an assignment in battle, you're not, everything is not explained to every soldier. Not, the global strategy is not imparted in detail to every single one. They're just given an assignment. So their job is to keep that assignment. If your job is to watch at this post, don't go wandering off. You keep your post until you're called off. If you've ever studied the Japanese, there's all sorts of interesting stories as follow-up to the Japanese uh, engagement in World War II because they were so loyal, fiercely loyal, that if their commander didn't call them off their duty, they would stay there. And there were men 20 years after the battle that were still fighting in the forests, Japanese. They were never told. And this one man, there's this one story of this Japanese guy who was retired. I know he's a school teacher. And they call him back in and say, you need to go to, I don't know, some island and actually get one of your men from World War II, 20 years before, and tell him that the war is done and he can leave his post. I mean, that's just, a, okay, yeah, like that. Okay, how can we have a little more Japanese in us? Okay, I'm not really wanting us to be World War II Japanese-ish, but I do want that quality. That's an extraordinary quality that's missing in our disposition of prayer. There's an illustration I've used many times that to try and articulate this notion of staying the course, holding the position in prayer. And so I remember Hudson was like one, maybe, okay? And he's, Leslie is going to uh, Sam's Club. And they're in the parking lot, and Leslie has all of her stuff on the front seat, her purse, her phone, her keys. They're all sitting there, and she's doing something, you know, one of those kid things where you have to get a pack on or something. And then she turns and bumps the door and closes it. And it's locked. And Hudson's in it. It's like 100 degrees out, okay? And so this is like the mom's worst nightmare, okay? And so she's staring through the window, and there's Hudson going, you know, laughing. And he thinks it's great as, as mom is making horror faces. And she looks on the seat. There's her keys. There's her phone. There's her purse. I mean, everything she would need to interact and do anything. And so now she's in a rather tough spot because the only way to address the issue is to leave Hudson. And yet uh, the mom instinct is to stay. But if she stays, she can't remedy the problem. So she knows that there is someone who can help. His name is uh, Eric. Okay, I'm... I'm, in, I'm about 20 minutes away, is that, I don't know if that's about what it is to Sam's Club from here, maybe 15, 20 minutes, and so uh, I'm working, writing, doing something, right, and uh, so she has to run into Sam's Club, beg to use a phone, okay, she has no money, right, so even if there was a pay phone, which I don't even know if they have pay phones anymore, do they even have pay phones, <laughs> beg to use a phone, she calls me, uh, off a, you know, the Sam's Club's like, oh, yeah, yeah, call. And so she calls me. I get this call, and it is very brief. And she's like, I need you to get to Sam's Club immediately. Hudson's locked in the car. My keys are in the car. My phone's in the car. I can't talk anymore. I need to get out to Hudson. Can you come immediately? Yes. <laughs> she makes her petition known. Now, here's one thing my wife knows. I care about her, and I care about my son. What should she know in that situation? is that she has made a request, I will respond. Now, what she doesn't know or remember is that I have some complications. You know what my complications are? My car is in the shop. <laughs> Isn't this great? This is a great story. I'm even fascinated with how it's going to turn out. And so I'm thinking through the dilemma, and that is that even if I can find a car, 
her keys are in that car, which means I need to find the extra set of keys. Oh no, where are our extra set of keys? So I'm trying to figure out, I need to figure out a, a vehicle and I need to find our extra set of keys. So I have delay, okay? Now it's not delay that's on purpose. A lot of us think that God is like, mm-hmm, okay, they ask, Let, let's, let's wait a while here. All right, yeah, let, let's, let him, let's let him sit in this, in this challenge for a little longer. Hold off, hold off, angels. No, no, I wanna watch, I wanna just see. Okay, but God is eager to answer. He is desirous to answer. You know how much I wanted to get there and I couldn't communicate with her? I couldn't tell her that I had delays. Ooh, that's hard. Because as a loving bridegroom, I genuinely want her to feel secure and I want her to know my care over her. So it's hard. And so I, I borrow a car, I get the keys and I'm making it, but it's taking, you know, 35 minutes to make it a place that might be 15 to 20. So you can just imagine what's going on in Lessa. It's like, where is he? And there's Hudson, you know, it's hot out and he's in the car, you know, he's only gonna be smiling and playing for so long until he's finally like, how come mama you don't pick me up and hold me? Now here's, this didn't happen, okay? But I'm just going to give you an illustration. Let's imagine that Leslie begins to doubt that I am coming, okay? Now that, that didn't happen. I did come, we did get the door open, okay? That's, however, let's imagine that she doubts that I'm coming. And some guy walks out, some big burly guy walks out of Sam's Club with a baseball bat. And he's, he's walking near the car. You know, it's tempting to say, hey, sir, could you just come over here and bust through the window so I could get my son out? In other words, to come up with an Ishmael solution to what is supposed to be an Isaac process. There's a reason why God cannot honor the Ishmael solution. Because it is not of faith. You see, what God desires is us for, for us to hold on and trust his nature and his character. Was I coming? Of course. How much more so is God coming? If I, an earthly bridegroom, can be so faithful as to make my way from my house in Windsor to Sam's Club in as quick of a pace as I possibly can, how much more so the God of the universe who loves us and cares for us far more than Eric cares for his wife? We are in good hands when we pray. We need to remember that when there is delay, when there is complication, when there is what the Bible calls tarrying. When God seems to tarry, do you still trust him? Dogged, isn't that a great word? I just really like it. I like words. I don't know, if it, are any of you, uh, the rest of you in here, word people, where you just really love words? Oh, we've got quite a few of you. So, yeah, we should compare favorite words uh, at a time. We should have a little gathering on the side. <laughs> Dogged, marked by stubborn determination. Isn't that good? Marked by stubborn determination. It's like that dog at the tree. It's like, I can't do the way, I'm not good at that. Maybe I'll just give up on that one. Tenacious, determined, resolute, persistent. They're not relenting. You are a Christian, which means you will not let go. Remember Jacob in the dark night? Let go of me, says God. No. I will not go until you bless me. And God says, that's what I'm looking for, right there. That's, that's what this message is about, actually. James 5, 16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So you know what we could say? We could say, the effective, dogged, Prayer of a righteous man avails much. Avails much means it accomplishes amazing things. So if you desire to have a prayer life that matches what scripture is intending for your life to match, there needs to be this doggedness, fervency, persistence. 
You need to be resolute in what you're after. You can't be shoved around by circumstances. So the word that we probably more recognize is persistence. I mean, even the word perseverance, it's a good one, but persistence, I think, is the most normal word in our English language today to describe it. It's the essence of fervent prayer. So I'm going to give you a story uh, from way back 2,000 years ago, and it's found in Mark 2, and many of you are going to be familiar with this story. We have, uh, you know, everyone that comes to Jesus is healed. We know that, and I I mentioned uh, yesterday in our training that Lazarus is some weird exception. Now, he is healed, but there's a little delay in it, which is a fascinating study in and of itself, but what we have is most people and their certain ailments, like say you have a withered hand. Well, it's not easy to have a withered hand, but at least you have two legs that can walk to Jesus and say, hey, could you heal my withered hand? In this story, we have someone who can't walk. And so as a result, they're in a great state of dependency. And so what we're going to see, and I'm going to parallel this story with how the church or how we are supposed to function in regards to the burdens that we've been assigned. Okay, remember the ant in the corn that I talked about yesterday? He's given a burden. What is he supposed to do with that burden? He's supposed to carry that burden until he reaches its destination. Now, many of us, the problem is we're setting down our burdens prematurely, and therein lies our failure in prayer. What good is the ant's 69 attempts if he doesn't try the 70th time? It's all a waste. If you think about it, it's like what a... What a ridiculous process this was. You never, the, the corn is exactly where you started. But the 70th time, guess where? It's, it's, it's at its destination. We need to persevere and persist until. We see that in this story. And again, he, Jesus, entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. And straightway, many were gathered together in so much that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they came unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. So you see these four men. It could be, technically, there could be a woman in there. I mean, it doesn't say. It just says there's four, right? And these four see a burden, and they pick it up. And what, what, where are they headed with it? They're headed to Jesus. The problem is they have some impediments. It's not just an open highway. They have a big crowd around the house. And this is heavy. It's not light to be carrying a man sick with the palsy. Your burden isn't light either. And yet there's a lot of temptation to set it down when you begin to run into some obstacles. And you're like, oh, great. We got a crowd here. Uh Uh-oh. Now, most of us give up at that exact point. The reason this story is in Scripture is on purpose. It's showing us something. Actually, you know what it's showing us? It's showing us the faith of the four. Not necessarily the faith of the man sick with the palsy. Well, we could presume he might even have been asking to go to Jesus' feet, right? He, he could have faith. However, the story seems to center around the faith of the four that are bearing him up, which is a fascinating statement. In other words, they know that if they get him to Jesus, he will be whole. However, they have obstacle on the way. You see, there's things you know like that too. Oh, if we could just get him to Jesus, but wow, it's hard to do that. And yet, doggedness is what is required. And when they could not come near unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, isn't that a fascinating statement? He said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. 
But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately, when Jesus perceived this in his spirit, that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, why, why reason you these things in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and take up thy bed and walk, but that you may know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise and take up thy bed. And go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. So there's a lot of fascinating details in that story. And there's even a declaration of Christ's own divinity, his godness, in it because of how he even says it. Every Jew knows that only one can forgive sins. And so what does he say? Thy thy sins be forgiven thee. Now he's saying it on purpose. And so then the, all these, these scribes are like, what? And then Jesus says, oh, well, just so you know that I have the power to forgive sins, rise up and walk. In other words, he's declaring who he is in front of them all. Now, that's a, that's a different angle that you could look at this story. The part I want you to see is the four because that's where we play a part. You see, there are going to be potentially even some of you in here that are going to be healed quicker than others, if you want to say it that way where you're ready to bear others up in this room. And there could be some of you that might have an ailment that needs the body of Christ to surround you and pick you up. Now, by the way, most of us don't want to be the one that has the ailment that needs to be picked up, okay? Granted, we don't want that for whatever. It's a pride thing. However, the guy, there's a lot of people in the store. It's the guy that's sick with the palsy that ends up being the little star character here. God focuses in, zooms in on this, and he's showing both the behavior of the body of Christ And he's showing also the humility of the one that needs to be carried. And as a result, it shocks everyone. There is something very beautiful that comes forth. The godness of Jesus comes forth. It echoes in and through the circumstance. However, what we see is four that have a burden, and they begin to carry, and they run into an obstacle. And then they're like, hey, let's go through the roof. I mean, that's the craziest thought. Now, very likely their roof systems were different than ours, okay? Granted, this may have been a little easier than what I picture it as, is growing up on this steep incline with this man sick with the palsy, and then they have to break through the roof. Could you imagine trying to break through, you know, a tile roof, you know, with all this, you know, the wood underneath it and the many layers, and you're like, <laughs> uh, with your axe. I mean, that's a hard, that's my mental picture of it, right, when I look at it from the American mindset. I'm guessing it was a lot more simple to break through. However, we're still breaking a roof. And so I'm not sure if the owner of the house was like, hey, yeah, sure. Come on, just break through my roof. I mean, great. Last time I invite Jesus into my house. (laughs) However, what we see is obstacle. We see impediments. We see layers of difficulty. And yes, maybe those layers of difficulty aren't as difficult as I would perceive as being you know, a, an American-made house and, you know, breaking through the roof to, to, to set someone down. However, they're impediments. They're layers of difficulty. I, just to even get a man sick with the palsy up on top of a roof, okay, now that's something that most of us want to avoid. It's like, okay, if it's not easy, I'm not doing it. And yet, I'm going to tell you up front, it's not easy. I'm just going to break it to you right now. The challenge that we've been assigned to bring the glory of God to this earth, to bring the kingdom of heaven to this earth, that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. This is not easy. It's called a narrow way. You guys know what the word narrow actually means? It means a way of difficulty and compression. It says, and fewer those who find it. 
And I always like to add the comment on the side, fewer those who want to find it. We don't want narrow. We don't want difficult. We want easy. We want comfortable. We want uh, the Hawaiian islands with the sun baking down on us. And, you know, we, wa- we want the, sea, you know, the, the waves crashing on the seashore. And we want to go, ah, this is nice. And yet we have one shot at this thing called life. We have one go at this to do it right. You can sit on the beach in heaven very soon, but we have a job to do right now. We are soldiers that are enlisted and we are actively engaged in a military campaign. We need to remember that. God will, in the midst of this military campaign, give our souls rest. He will comfort us, but we have to recognize that this is wartime. And so as a result, that touches us. I know, even what I'm saying right now, it's like, e- I, I want ease. We crave ease. It is a weird, strange phenomenon of humanity. But God has an assignment for us. The question is, are we willing to carry our burden all the way to the feet of Jesus? Are we willing to do it until we reach the end? Breaking up the roof. I think that's a great illustration of what it means even in modern American Christianity. They're like, here, I'm going to imagine that it's a tile roof that they're going through. Okay, very likely it may not have been, right? Uh, but let's imagine that it's a tile roof. And so it's not very easy to break through a tile roof. And so you break through one layer, and what oftentimes happens in American Christianity is you recognize there's another layer right underneath. And then we, we like, give up. We're like, that's, that's too much. I just can't keep trying. Some of us have gone through multiple layers of roof, and it just seems like it's... It's impossible to see the kingdom of heaven come into this culture. You know how many years I have been fighting for this culture? And you know what? When it gets worse, even though I'm still breaking through tile roof, you start to grow weary in well-doing. You follow me? Okay, so what should I do? You tell me what I should do. I know what you're feeling because I feel it too. I feel like giving up. Well, Eric can feel like giving up too, but... If you were to encourage me according to scripture, what would you say? Don't grow weary in well-doing, Eric. Keep going. Keep going, Eric. You have a vision there. You've been given a burden. You have to keep pressing. Don't, don't grow weak right now. Come on. Keep going. Okay, so that's echoing. It's bouncing off me right back to you. You know what to do. You know what scripture assigns us. It's just we're human. But when we try and attack this with our own human gusto, what's going to happen? We're going to fall short. So what do we need? We need grace. We need God gusto inside of us. You've been looking to your own pocket strength, going, oh boy, do I have the strength to do this? No, is the answer. He has it. So if you will freshly look to him, you'll find a vigor inside of you to keep going. And then when, when they could not come near unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. You got a job, guys. We need to get this culture to Jesus' feet. When you run into a soul that is it's in the stew, it's in the, the battle, you know they need Jesus. And you need to fight for it. You can't just go, well, you know what? They can only fight so much. You can fight until they get to the feet of Jesus. The tile ceiling over the American church feels like, if you go to a different country, it's, it's strange, guys. I have many testimonies of this. 
You can go to another country, lay hands on the sick, and they're healed in Jesus' name. That's weird. A conservative can go overseas, lay hands on the sick, and see them healed. It's like, what was that? You come here, and I tell you what. To even see a flicker of the power of God in this generation is rare in America. What's that? It's sort of hard to explain, but we got like a tile ceiling over the church. Sort of like we're looking up. God's up there. We're trying to get the stuff of heaven down here. We got to somehow bust through that roof, grab the stuff of heaven, and yank it back down here. This is like some serious barrier here. And I don't know if it's because we've been entrusted so much truth, and as a result, we're fat and happy and satisfied in our own successes. We don't need God. I have no idea what the issue is. You know, it's, it says of Jesus when he was in his hometown, it says, and he could do no miracles there. That's an interesting statement. And I've thought about that many times. It's like, we are so familiar. It's almost like we're the hometown of Jesus Christ. Like, oh, we know him. Yeah, we've grown up with him. And as a result, it's sort of like he can do no miracles here. Isn't that just a fascinating statement? Now, I'm the sort of Christian that doesn't need miracles to believe. I don't. Okay, no one needs to rise from the dead for me to go, oh, God's powerful. I already know God's powerful. The thing that I desire is for that power to break through and begin to change lives here. I don't even care if people are healed in the physical sense. I, I don't, even though I know it's a byproduct when Jesus is present. What I desire are for people to be changed, dramatically altered, set free, and to have their eyes open to the glory of God. That's just as supernatural as a dead man rising to life. I want to see God get his due. But to see that happen, there has to be a doggedness, not just in me, but in us. We have to fight to see the realities of the kingdom of heaven come to this earth. Uh, so Rachel, uh, in the Old Testament, she's barren, and she has a prayer. There is nothing worse in the Old Testament than to be a woman that is barren. Isn't that just an interesting statement? It was an issue of shame, because a woman, in a sense, in a strange way, in this culture, so it's, it's a warping, received in a sense of value from having children, especially male children. Okay, now you could say, well, that's unhealthy. Yeah, I'm not going to argue that. However, this is a deep felt thing culturally. Give me children or I die. Okay, that, that's pretty extreme. It's like, Rachel, settle down there. Settle down there. However, what we're seeing is a parallel. We're seeing men and women of faith in the Old Testament parallel. Now, they're, they're talking about earthly children, and we're like, well, why do you get that? Children are hard. They cost a lot of money. Boy, I mean, that's a, why would you want that? You see, this is symbolic. Did you know that this is what's supposed to be going on inside of you? It's a desperation. But for us, it's not earthly biological children. It's spiritual children. It's the fruit of the Spirit being born out of us. It's that which God intended us to produce, and we are supposed to be so longing for it. This burden is so intense, God. Give me children, or I die. The weight is so extreme. And imagine if we all carried that spiritually. Woo, world changed. So here's, here's a different rendition of it for us. The 21st century church, give us the stuff of old or we die. Look, God, I, I love the fact that you're near to me. I love the fact that I can have fellowship with you, but this culture's dying around me. And though I am blessed by knowing you, they need to know you too. I know you shed your blood for them. 
So somehow, some way, that power of old has to invade this culture and stir it and awaken it and break off its shackles. The devil has them in his grip and that grip must be broken. Please, Lord! There's a desperation. There's an urgency that is meant to course through the souls of the saints to see the power of God revealed in this earth. So I'm going to call it the agony of barrenness. Uh, the beginnings, and it's the beginnings of persistent prayer. So this dogged prayer, this fervent prayer that we're describing, it comes from something. It comes actually from an agony that God allows us to feel. Okay, so I'll, I'll explain this historically. There are, you know, there are a lot of barren women. A, a barren woman, I'm, I'm not sure if that's a foreign term, uh, a woman who cannot conceive and bear a child. She's barren. So, but there's a lot of barren women in scripture. In fact, shockingly so, in a culture where the weight of having children is so important, it's very fascinating who God chooses in his lineage. There's all these women in his lineage and he seems to hand select them. The one thing he forgot to check before he hand selected them is to see if they could have children. <laughs> one after the next he picks and he's like, oh no. Oh no, I picked another barren one. The barren woman is shamed by her fruitlessness and cries out in anguish of soul. You know, one of the best things that could happen to the church of Jesus Christ today is for us to be shamed by our fruitlessness. You know that the church of Jesus Christ in America is shrinking every year? Now, I want you to recognize the impossibility of that. That's impossible. The church can't shrink. You see, every one of us is a messenger and a herald, and we have a very clear assignment, and that's to bear fruit. So it's impossible. The church can't shrink, because just imagine if every single one of us just led one person to the Lord each year, we've doubled. So imagine just a fraction of us lead someone to the Lord. Like, I mean, one-tenth of us lead someone to the Lord. Oh, wow, we've increased. We're shrinking. Okay, do you see a problem there? I think, we, I think we need to recognize we're a barren woman here in America right now. And the barren woman is supposed to be shamed by her fruitlessness and to cry out in anguish of soul, God, give us children or we die. And that's literally the state of the church. The barren woman is moved to prayer to cover her shame of fruitlessness. So what does her, her shame of fruitlessness lead to? Prayer. You're going to see this all throughout Scripture. You're going to see a woman who is barren, and what does she begin to do? She turns to God, and she begins to pray. That barrenness actually leads to prayer, not just any kind of prayer, dogged prayer. She begs God night and day for life to form within her. The barren woman is supernaturally aided through prayer to bear not a mere human, but a mighty man, a prevailing hero of Israel, some of the greatest men in all of history, came out of barren women. Isn't that an amazing statement? So yes, we as the church here in North America may be barren, but that should get us excited too. Because what it should do is we should be brought to shame of our childlessness, then we should be moved to pray doggedly, and then what happens? We could actually see the greatest strengthening of the church in all of world history come out of what is right now barren. It's interesting, uh, Winston Churchill has an observation of well, 1938 Great Britain. I mean, it was a pathetic generation. 
they are literally allowing Hitler to grow in his power and they're turning a blind eye. They don't want to fight. They don't want to protect Austria. They don't want to protect Czechoslovakia. They don't want to do anything. They don't want war. So they're willing to sacrifice other countries. And Churchill acknowledges, he says, in this generation that at this exact moment looked so weak is going to prove themselves to be one of the greatest generations of men ever. Okay, we could use a little dose of that. Because <laughs> right now, if I'm Winston Churchill, my middle name's Winston, if I'm Winston Churchill and I'm giving an assessment of our generation, I'm like, okay, right now, we are pathetic. We don't care about the unborn child in the womb. We don't care about the dying, the, the widow, the orphan. We don't care about the lost. We are Christians and we don't care? The persecuted church all over the world, the enemy is literally having them under their thumb and we are not bearing their chains with them. We are not suffering with those that are suffering. We're not crying with those that are crying. What's wrong with us? But it is possible that this very generation could be the conduit through which God brings his greatest movement of grace this world has ever seen. I like that thought. So listen to just a brief overview of history. Sarah, barren until 90 years of age, begets Isaac. All right, that's pretty impressive. She was 90 and barren. Okay, that's a bad combination. And she actually gives birth to Isaac. Whoa, whoa, that's a big deal. Rebecca. So God picks Sarah, right? And then he picks Rebecca. And if you, if you know the story, uh, God hand-selected her and he should have checked her womb before he did, right? In fact, you almost get the idea that he picked her on purpose because of that. Because that's part of the grand story. Rebecca is barren, and then after Isaac's prayer, she begets twins, Esau and Jacob, who's also known as Israel. Okay, that's, that's impressive. Then we have Rachel. I mean, we just go right down the line here. The next, I mean, this is three straight generations. It's like God is starting out, you know, this grand movement of faith and grace and this inheritance of the kingdom and this covenant with Abraham, and this is how he starts it. Come on, God, check the womb. <laughs> Rachel, Jacob's wife, is barren. And then begets Joseph, who delivered the nation of Israel. Manoah's wife, remember her, was barren, and then she begets Samson, another deliverer of the nation. Hannah was barren, and then has Samuel, a prophet of Israel. Ruth was barren and widowed, finds mercy, and begets Obed, who begets Jesse, the father of David, of whose line is Jesus Christ. Elizabeth, elderly and unable to bear children after the natural, begets John the Baptist, of whom Jesus said there was no greater prophet born of women. Whew! That's quite the lineage that comes out of barrenness. Okay, that's God's story. So we could use that encouragement today because I would say we're, we're barren. And it does not mean that there aren't those of you in here that have led someone to the Lord this last year. I'm just saying that as a whole, we are weak. We do not have that flicker, that fire within our belly to say this is going to happen in this generation. We are not barking up the tree as the hound dog. We have given up our pursuit. We're the old hound (laughs) slumbering on the mat. You see, there is something that needs to be gone after in this generation. And we need the Spirit of God to stir in us afresh to go after it. 
This is a great quote from Leonard Ravenhill, one of my favorites, favorite guys, Leonard Ravenhill. By the way, who, what, who did the sermon last night? Which sermon did you guys get? Vance Habner? Was it good? Oh, good. Leonard Ravenhill says, if shame of childlessness had not subdued these women, what mighty men would have been lost? Isn't that an interesting statement? See, shame of childlessness subdued them to the point where they cried out. And if they had not had barrenness, if they hadn't been shamed by their barrenness, if they hadn't cried out in that agony, in that persistent prayer, oh, we wouldn't have had such great and mighty men. And so you actually see God forming this might out of this childlessness. Genesis 32, key moment where you have Jacob in the dark night, a place called Peniel, which is going to be named after this story. It's called the face of God. And so it says, and Jacob was left alone and there wrestled a man with him. And I should have capitalized the M on man because we actually are going to discover this is God. A man with him until the breaking of the day. And he, Jacob, said, I will not let go of thee, except thou bless me. And he, God, said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob, heel grabber, deceiver, supplanter. That's actually what his name was. And he, God, said, thy name shall be called no more, Jacob, but Israel. Don't you guys like that? Israel. Oh, this doesn't have any amplification on it. You guys didn't get to appreciate that. For as a prince has thou power with God and with men and hast prevailed. You see, where does the name Israel come about? You know that there is a true Israel. It doesn't just mean of the lineage of Abraham. It means those born of that spirit. It's unrelenting faith that marks the people of Israel. This is where it's seen first. You're going to see the name the title, the contender with God, the ones that bark up the tree until that raccoon is caught. They will not let go. That is Israel. That is what we want to be grafted into. That is what faith grafts us into. When we're in Christ, we're in that. Yisrael. Are you guys impressed? My, my, what, what have you heard? My Latin? You've heard my Greek, you've heard my Chinese. There's, there's two people that happen to speak Chinese in here too. I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> and now you're hearing a little Hebrew from me, okay? Yisrael. I love saying that word. For some reason, it makes me feel really strong. It means contender, soldier of God, the prevailing power of God, the power of God unto victory. This is gained because you will not let go. William Booth. We're going to finish with this quote. You must pray with your might. That does not mean saying your prayers or sitting gazing about in church or chapel with eyes wide open while someone else says them for you. It means fervent, effectual, untiring wrestling with God. It means that grappling with omnipotence, that clinging to him, following him about, so to speak, day and night as the widow did to the unjust judge with agonizing pleadings and arguments and entreaties until answer comes and the end is gained. This kind of prayer be sure the devil and the world and your own indolent, unbelieving nature will oppose. They will pour water on this flame. They will ply you with suggestions and difficulties. They will ask you how you can expect that the plans and purposes and feelings of God can be altered by your prayers. They will talk about impossibilities and predict failures. But if you mean to succeed... You must shut your ears and eyes to all but what God has said and hold him to his own word. 
And you cannot do this in any sleepy mood. You cannot be a prevailing Israel unless you wrestle as Jacob wrestled. Regardless of time and aught else, save obtaining the blessing sought. That is, you must pray with your might. Stirs me up. Daily Thunder is a listener supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8 15 a.m. and weekends at 9 15 a.m. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day week or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.